Welcome to the Habits and Hustle podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now here's your host, Jennifer Cohen. Welcome to the podcast. I'm going to do a quick intro. Um, this is Ethan Malik, right? Is that how you say your name? Perfect. Okay. He wrote the book, The Unicorn Shadow. And you are basically, you are, you're, you're a professor at Wharton Business School, right? Mm-hmm. And you study and you, you study startups, right? So you're like, the, you are the maven. You know everything about what uh, a startup should do, what it shouldn't do, and uh, everything in between. Um, so welcome to the podcast. We'd love to have you. And Glad to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. And I guess, why don't we just start uh, with the basics of your background and what kind of makes you the connoisseur, so to speak, on startups? Are, are you a, a founder? Are you a, were you a startup guy? Yes, yeah, so I, I lived through it myself before deciding to become an academic. So I started a company with a college roommate and we were one of the inventors of the paywall. So the thing that can't get you access mm-hmm. to like news, like that's my fault and I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh-oh. First people to invent that. Um, and I, um, my, my roommate was amazing. He, you know, had the original idea and, and was a coder and, you know, a, a major investor. And I made every possible mistake, uh, there. So we successfully grew the company. We built it. It was, it exited, went through the whole process. Um, but, um, I kind of realized I needed to figure out how to do this right. So, um, I went to get an MBA and then realized nobody really knew anything. And so I decided I'll, I'll at least be at the cutting edge of not knowing anything. So I went and got a PhD and became a professor in this. So I teach classes on entrepreneurship. I do active research on entrepreneurship, um, advise lots of companies. So I, I want to just be ca- cautious. You were saying I know everything. Uh, there, No one knows everything about this. And I have a very small slice and one perspective out of many. I was actually just teasing you. I, I know that. But you've spent a lot of your years uh, really focusing on studying startups and what the pitfalls are the myths, and your your book really talks a lot about the the myths of what of what people think startups are about. You combat the myths. You you talk about what holds back startups, about uh, founders, investors, and what I would like to. I would. I have so many questions for you. I'd like to start by just starting. Why don't you tell us also why did you name the book the Unicorn Shadow? What was the reason for that? Uh, so, I mean, there is the, there are two reasons. The, uh, first reason is very serious, which is that, um, unicorns are billion dollar private companies before they go public. Mm -hmm. So, um, everyone's entrepreneurial goal is to become a unicorn. But the problem is that when trying to be a unicorn, people pick up very bad habits because the models of people who start unicorn companies, um, tend to be, tend to give you bad ideas about who needs to be a founder. The advice they give is often incorrect and trying to be a unicorn often leads to trouble. So that's the sort of the shadow of the unicorn. Mm. And the other reason is I'm a total nerd. and I thought it sounded like a fantasy novel too. So I kind of wanted to kill two birds with one stone um, and, <laughs> and start off like a new series. If, if the, if the, it doesn't sell well as, a, as an entrepreneurship book, I could always call it like number two, the wizard's demise or something and have a fantasy trilogy out of it. So I wouldn't either way. <laughs> That's very, those are two very different reasons, yeah, but exactly. uh, <laughs> what can you can we talk a little bit about some of the most common myths that people have uh, about about startups? Let's, why don't you take it and, and give us a few? Sure. So um, 
I, I think a lot of them start, there's a lot of different parts of myths, but the myths start with who founds companies, right? Um, and if you think about famous founders, anyone come to mind when I tell you, when I say like famous founder, like big startup success? Of course. Uh, 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 Mark Zuckerberg would be right. one. Yep. Would be right. Classic. And everyone says probably everyone says the same same few. I'm sure, right? Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Musk, Bill Gates, and Elon like, Musk, of course. Exactly. And so, and this model in our head of founders tends to be this twenty something white male college dropout coding geek person tends to be mm -hmm. our view in our head. Um, and that influences people, right? So we actually know that, for example, that model discourages people from becoming founders, but that model is like not true in every possible dimension, right? So we could pick any one of those things to talk about why they're not true, right? We can talk about age, right? So you think about this 18-year-old college dropout, 20-year-old college dropout. We actually have really good data now, thanks to work done by Dan Kim, who's a colleague of mine, Pierre Azule, and a bunch of other people at MIT, um, who found looked at all the U.S. census data, right? So this is real definitive, all the data in the U.S. The average age for a founder in the United States is 42. Okay, but you think, okay, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's just for like founders of any company. What about venture capital-backed founders, also 42? Well, okay, well, maybe what about hyper-growth companies, companies in the top 0.01% of all growth in the United States? The average age for that is 45 to 59 for founders in that age. So you're actually older founders wow. are much more successful, which makes sense when you think about it, because the vast majority of stuff, having connections, having money, understanding how an industry works, working your way up and being successful and understanding how to run meetings and keep track of things is actually really helpful, right? So we tend to view these sort of young founders as the key, they're not. But we can talk about any of the other dimensions too. Gender and startups is an area I do a lot of research on about the kinds of companies people found. But almost every one of these myths is wrong. Um, and it's, it's important people know that because it discourages people from otherwise trying when they could be successful. That's such a good point. First of all, because you're right, you think about someone, I, you know, when you first ask me to name someone who's, you know, a, a very famous uh, founder, I think of someone who has a hoodie on, right? right, who basically was at Harvard and dropped out, right, or something like that, yep. right? I would never have thought it would have been someone who's in their 40s, right? That's just not what your, where your mind goes to. And that probably stops a lot of people from uh, pursuing whatever their their passion or dream is to start something because they don't think they have a chance. Yep. Yeah, right? it's one, exactly. Exactly. Everyone does pattern matching, right? So what entrepreneurs do is they're very, you know, in venture capitalists, everyone else is they look for patterns they've seen before and want to jump on those. And our patterns are reinforced by sort of these media views, but not by the actual facts. Um, so right. one of the crazy things about being an academic is we get to study the real data behind this. Um, and it doesn't always match our expectations. So what, can you give me some, uh, before I even ask you more about these myths, uh, is it, what's, what's the, found, what did you find about people who, like, for example, if I want to start a company, right, and I, I say to myself, oh, I can't do, you know, another, another fitness app, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, right, because it's a saturated market. People stop because they also think a market is flooded with a lot of things already. What, what kind of data do you show on things that are, you know, kind of saturated? Is there room for, uh, I guess, a unicorn or someone to come in still? Yes, there's a lot, of, a lot of things in what you just said that kind of have to be pulled apart. So one of them is uh, one third of Americans every year have an idea for a startup company, but less than half of them bother even Googling to find out whether the idea exists or not. Almost everyone gives up right away. 
So saturated markets are hard, right? But almost every market is saturated in some way. So your goal is to find a new customer base, an unmet need, um, a market that that you could use the size of the incumbent company against them to go against to go after them. You don't need an idea that no one's ever had in before in the world to be successful, right? Um, And you know, uh, this is not the only podcast in the world, but you've carved out a really huge niche and rabid followers, right? And it's not because you were the first to ever come up with the idea of being a, of doing a podcast. It's because you found a market need that was out there and were able to go after it and, and make it work that other people didn't. So give us some other myths that people uh, fall on that they just, they stop before they start because they think it's, you know, it's the real deal. Uh, so another one is that you need to be a certain kind of person to be a founder. You need like it, right? And this is a really common view. It's sort of the idea that like you need something. And and here's the interesting thing. We have lots of personality studies. People have been studying entrepreneurship for 40 years trying to figure out what personality types make you successful as a founder. And here's what we found. There's no clear answer. There's nothing actually stands out. Right now, there are some things that help a little bit. Um, being, uh, like there's a, there's a couple personality characteristics, conscientiousness helps you a little bit, but it helps you in almost everything you do. Right. Um, so there's almost no kind of myth that nothing that works. Now there are things that predict you trying to start a company, right? They don't predict success, but they predict trying. So parents who are entrepreneurs is, is strongly predictive of trying. Um, the biggest personality characteristic that predicts trying is overconfidence. Right, because you mm-hmm. have to. It's like starting a band or becoming an actor. You have to actually ignore the evidence that you're probably going to fail. Um, right. So overconfidence predicts trying, but doesn't predict success. So you might see a lot of overconfident people. That's not because overconfidence makes you more successful, but overconfident people are more likely to try entrepreneurship. Mm, so that's a good one. if you think you don't have the personality type because you don't match a Mark Zuckerberg, or you're too caring, or you're not, you know, you're too, you're you, you know, you like people too much, or you're not, you know, you're not. Um, you're not vicious enough or whatever you think the characteristics are not predictive at all of success. Right. So there's no point in sticking with the personality type. What's another personality type that you, uh, that you can tell me that um, makes people at least try it. You said overconfidence, Uh, uh, parents who were entrepreneurs. Give me a couple other ones. Yep. There's a bunch of those. So um, what's called an internal locus of control, which means you like to be in control of your own destiny. So mm-hmm. people like that are more likely to start companies, right? Actually, a lot of startups come out of frustration from people in large companies who get annoyed and then they leave that company taking their best ideas with them and then picking their favorite colleagues to go with them, right? So like that's the other reason why 40-something founders often do really well is they're able to take advantage of the fact that they can cherry pick the very best people out of a company of already good people and take them with them. So that locus of control is another big issue that uh, predicts entrepreneurial entry. Um, you know, it's, there's also just like, so for example, there's people who just want to be entrepreneurs and we find it's very consistent. So, um, people who are drug dealers and arrested for dealing drugs as teenagers are much more likely to become entrepreneurs later on than people who really? are arrested for non-entrepreneurial offenses or felonies. Right. So, um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff kind of built in. I like that. Uh, can we, let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's say you, you, you have an idea uh, and then you want to, can we talk a little bit what makes a really good elevator pitch and then what makes a really good pitch to, to get an investor to actually give you money? Yep, definitely. Um, so, okay. So we come back to talking about where ideas come from, but let's assume you have a good idea, right? You're ready to launch your company. Well, wait, let, you know, let's start with what you just said. Let's, let's go in chronological sure. uh, order where ideas come from. So you want to start with that and we can kind of move on from there. Yeah, so there's not like one magical way to generate ideas, but there's four or five techniques that we know work pretty well. 
right? And there's some stuff you want to do in advance. So it turns out um, that there's a few things that are sort of on the habits side of habits and hustle that uh, everybody should do that are very clearly make you more creative and more successful, right? And the clearest one of these is sleep. So it turns out sleep is just overwhelmingly important for creativity. And I say this as someone who sleeps like five hours a night, unfortunately, but um, it turns out like if you sleep, like people who don't sleep generate worse ideas, but they also don't aren't as good at evaluating those ideas. So they're People who don't sleep, who have insomnia, mm-hmm. are more likely to start companies, but they're more likely to start companies around bad ideas. People who sleep more actually are less likely to start companies with better ideas, right? So it yeah. actually, it actually um, there's some evidence like people who with ADHD are more likely to launch companies um, because, and in the same way, insomnia has some of those same characteristics, right? Once you've started a company, also by the way, sleep matters a lot. So sleep sets your mood, and if you're in a good mood, your company catches your good mood and makes the entire company more innovative. If you don't sleep, we actually have evidence it takes your bad mood with you. And also, oh, by the wow. way, sleep also lets you solve problems you didn't think you had. So people who solve, try and solve puzzles and then sleep on it are actually more creative the next day when they think of things. So uh, mindfulness is helpful, but only about half as good as sleep in terms of restoring. Uh, and spending the same amount of time sleeping in terms of restoring that creativity. Um, and you need so, to sleep is a, so sleep is a number one to, ge- so to generate. It's a nice thing to have in the baseline, right? Um, right. Other things that increase creativity, um, caffeine increases creativity. Um, so far and away, caffeine, caffeine basically does everything good. Uh, so me- increases working memory, fluid intelligence, and, um, and um, your ability to, uh, and, and creativity. Um, also, alcohol actually does increase creativity. We know that up to a point, although a culture of alcohol in, in startup companies is destructive. So just watch your drinking. Um, so that's sort of baseline stuff, right? Um, also in the baseline side of good ideas, be curious and be learning about the world. So for example, people have better ideas if they're on Twitter and they are connected to lots of disconnected other people on Twitter. So they're learning ideas from all kinds of places. People who read a lot of information from different sources. So that's all baseline. Okay, so once we have that, how do we come with a good idea? Okay, few techniques, all right? Um, technique number one, is uh, sort of scratching your own itch. So find a problem that you have is another reason why somebody who's already a company might do quite well. Um, I often tell people the hint is if you're in a company and you see Excel being used for anything else, the Word program, the Office program being used for anything other than spreadsheets, that's a sign of a need because Excel is the programming language available to most people in most offices and people improvise all sorts of stuff with Excel. So if you see people using Excel for something wrong, you can build a product instead of that Excel thing and often make money. Um, But whatever problems that you've had, you know those problems really well. That's a really good place, a great place to start. Um, A second set of approaches is is what's called effectual approaches. Okay, so effectual comes from this work by Sarah Sarasvathi, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, who studied successful entrepreneurs and found out a lot of them took the typical way people do marketing, which she called causal, and flipped it on its head, which is why she calls it effectual. So what does that mean? That means you start off with some principles. You start with the principle of who am I, what do I know, right, and who do I know? Uh, so you start off with the resources you have at hand and think what company can I build with that? So what are my special skills that I have? What do I know that other people don't? Who do I know that other people don't? What connections do I have? Um, and often people have some weird hobby or other interest that they could potentially turn into a startup company of some sort, right? Um, right. So there, that's the kind of basis that you build from is thinking about what you know, who you know. That's another useful way to think about ideas. I've talked a lot. What other 
Um, no, no, I, I was going to say a lot of times, you know, you hear the expression a lot, like 1% is, uh, what is it, idea, your idea is 1% and the execution is 99%. So really, how good is an idea if you have a really, if you don't know how to execute properly? So that's really where, you know, is it because is that is that then finding a team around you that kind of supports the things that you're not good at to help you get this idea into an actual fruition? Yeah, so if you have a good idea, um, you'll need people to do that, right? And there's two ways to get people. There's having other founders with you, co-founders and a co-founding team. Um, and one of the things we talk about in the book, I talk about in the book, is that co-founders are something people think are absolutely necessary for startups. But it turns out that at least based on some data and the research I've been doing with Jason Greenberg at NYU is that um, co-founders are actually not always necessary. In fact, solo founders often do better because they're co-founders and them often get into arguments, right? And then right. the personal stuff can be really hard. Um, you could also hire people to do that job, right? You can get employees that could do jobs for you. And we talk about right. you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is the, the method that you use to hire people is also something that there's been a lot of scientific research on recently. Because you're right. I think also people end up getting uh, a co-founder uh, because they feel that they sometimes don't feel the confidence in themselves solely to do something that they want to partner in crime. They feel like they'll be more successful just based on having someone that they're in it with versus like you were saying, a lot of times it's probably much better to hire out those people and even own more of the, of the company, you know, a lot of the times. Exactly. I mean, and right. so it depends on how much money you have and it goes back to your topic of fundraising. But, you know, you, I think what I would say is if you've got a co-founder, also our data shows something interesting, which is the best co-founders are, and again, one paper. So please take everything with a grain of salt, right, on this one. Um, but it turns out family was actually the best to found with, which most people don't think. And then the second best, and the data is pretty strong on this, co uh, co-workers, people you've worked with before. It could be people you've worked with at school, people you've worked with outside of school, but people you've worked with before, you're going to have less conflicts with because you know how to work with them already. Well, right. so that's so funny because I've, you know, people always, again, these are all, these are big myths, right? Because you think that never, you always hear never work with family yeah. and you're saying family is the number one person that you would be the most successful with. According to the data, right. I understand. And, I know. And, according and, to data. And, and I don't know how that affects your family when you fail, right? Because, I mean, you know, so right. I can't tell you whether it's good personally for you, but if you think about most of the biggest companies in the world, a lot of them they all started as family-run companies, right? Almost all yeah. the biggest private companies in the world are still family-run companies. So we sort of say like, oh, there's all these giant family-run companies, right? But like, you know, who cares about that? But it's telling us something, right? Um, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then I guess that's interesting because when you first start a company, like, okay, can let, let's talk a little bit about when you when you are looking for people to invest, like, and then we can go we'll go through the other ways, pitching and everything. People go to family. A, there's family, angel, angel uh, accelerators, crowdfunding. When do you use what? When do yeah. you go to an accelerator? When do you use an angel investor? I would imagine family, you obviously go to first, right? That's like seed money. So, so it depends on your friends and family, right? So if we look at the actual stats, the number one source of funds for high growth startups in the US based on a representative survey is your own personal savings, right? Another reason why somebody who's, you know, your, your personal money. Second is debt. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And then on average, the third is all those other forms, of what we call dilutive funding, angels and um, venture capitalists who take a piece of your company in return for giving you money. That's why they're dangerous to take money from, because they're going to own a piece of your company and they're often very good at using that to their advantage, not to yours. Um, right. And then the fourth biggest source of funding is friends and family. 
And if you can get friends and family money, that's great, right? But the one downside is it's often incredibly stressful to take friends and family money because like you believe in yourself, great, they believe in you. But then now you've got your, your whole family's cash is on the line, not just your own. And we know that, that stress causes all sorts of things, including not just stressing out personally, but it actually makes you less likely to take risks because you're worried about risking your friends and family money. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't do it. Lots of people do. It's valuable. But you need to make sure that you're not just kind of pulling on obligations and you think about how to make that work. So how about it? Okay, so uh, when, do you, when do you go to an angel versus an accelerator? Okay, so investors will only invest in you, these outside investors, angels, accelerators. Um, and I don't know if your audience knows these different groups and I'm happy to explain them otherwise. I think that what we should do is I would imagine some do, but some won't. So let's just pretend that let's let's start with the baseline and then move on from there. Okay, so we just talked about friends and family, your own money and debt, right? Um, mm-hmm. Your own money and friends and, fa- and, and debt are what we call non-dilutive funding, right? No one's taking a mm-hmm. piece of your company. You might also be able to get grant money. That's a great way to go if you can get government grant money because that doesn't take a piece of your company. Mm-hmm. Usually friends and family, there's you're diluting your company down, but sort of unfriendly terms. All the rest of the stuff we're talking about is what we call dilutive funding. Why is someone investing in you? Because they want a piece of your company. So when your company sells for a lot of money, they get a piece of the return. They're making an investment right. in you, right? Um, so you can only usually raise most of these kinds of funds if you're planning on going big, right? Most business in America is not. If you're trying to launch a, you know, a, a restaurant, it's very hard for you to get angel money or venture capital money or accelerator money unless you're going to launch a whole chain of restaurants because you might make a lot of money running a restaurant. It's a very good business, right? Or a catering business or a dry cleaner, you know, or whatever you want. Those are very good businesses. You can get very wealthy doing it. But it's I thought restaurants get- are terrible businesses because uh, like they... Uh, yeah, I mean, they fit, but it could be <laughs> successful for you, right? But okay, more, okay. If you want to open a retail store or you want to open a gym, Right. All of those things are viable ways to make quite a bit of money for yourself. They're all dangerous. They have their own risks. Right. Not getting into huge detail on, on which ones. But none of those will get you venture capital or angel investment money generally, because right. what you're hoping to do is take home your profits. Right. You're going to you're going to make a, you know, maybe you make a couple million dollars a year. You pay a hundred and you know you pay one point two million in expenses. You take home eight hundred thousand and you're a very happy person. But you're going to run that for the rest of your life, right? And that's not something that you're, you're going to exit or sell to very easily, right? Similarly, even like doctor's offices, right? It's a great business to run or a chiropractor or whatever you're doing, good bit or law office, right? Those are not the kinds of things that get angel money generally or venture capital money. So you get angel venture capital money when you're launching an app, a B2B business, a, um, you're trying to go a chain of gyms, right? You're trying to go big. Um, right. And at what po- my question was more, at what point do you go try to get the VC money? What point? Because, you know, at what level, right? You go from friends and family. Uh, do you do crowdfunding? Can we talk about the crowdfunding? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, wh- when do you do what? So let's break it down for people. Because right. there's so many different ways to skin this cat. And I think it's really important to kind of really explain when, when, when is in your data, your, your knowledge, when do you do what? Okay, so the way to think about this is that there's rounds of funding is what it's referred to in sort of Silicon Valley, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a, a sort of a, C, a, a, a friends and family round is usually first where you're getting money from friends and family. Then there's what's called a seed round usually, then an A round, a B round, a C round, and each round goes up in size. So in the Silicon Valley world, a, a, round, a, a seed round is usually under under a million dollars of capital raised. A, a round is 1.5, uh, sorry, 1.5 million and you have like 3 million for a B round and it goes up from there. Um, it depends on 
a lot of circumstances. So um, usually in you'll go to an accelerator or crowdfunding before you raise an A round. So usually you'll get money from friends and family, you use that money and yourself, you'll use that money to prove that your idea works, get some really good initial data or prepare for a crowdfunding launch um, like Kickstarter. Or you'll go to angel investors at that point and try and raise a few hundred thousand dollars based on that initial money. You'll use that round then to show that you can actually scale your business. And then you go to venture capitalists. And the venture capitalists are usually have to invest a million plus to make it worth their while to talk to you. So you need right. to show that your company is worth several million dollars to make that happen. Good. Thank you. I, I like So thank you for just a, a clarifying all that. Um, now, let's talk about making an elevator pitch versus a pitch. How do you make a really strong elevator pitch? You know, a lot of times people like don't know how they... They don't know how to make that sound bite uh, successful. And they're like, ah, ooh, ah, ah, you know? And Yeah. Uh, so the book has a little more on this because I'll give you a formula, but it might be a little, it's like, it's, it's pretty quick, right? So the first thing is to realize that your goal of an elevator pitch is to get someone to ask you questions, right? An elevator pitch will not answer everyone's questions. And the best founders actually leave room for questions. They, they purposefully leave out something so they control the dialogue. So when they say something, it's the first question someone asks is, yes, but have you thought about this? And you're like, yes, I have. I'm glad we're talking about this. And now we're in a conversation. So right. the elevator pitch doesn't answer all the questions, right? It just shows you the basics. And there's a formula for it. So the formula to start off is, um, and I'm going to sound like Mad Libs here, for a blank who blanks, the blank is a blank that blanks, unlike blank, we blank. Um, so, and, <laughs> and so it's, for your customer who has a need, our product name is a product category that offers some benefit. Unlike our competitors, we're different in a key way. So your goal is to fill in the blank. So let's say we're doing the Tesla pitch, right? For yeah. high-end, like let's imagine we're doing the original Tesla Roadster, right? For high-end car fans, right? That's our audience who want a high-end, who want a sports car that's environmentally friendly. The Tesla Roadster is a high-end electric car that offers following benefit. It is very fast without any carbon emissions. Unlike Ferraris or Porsches, our competitors, we offer uh, we offer um, high performance without damaging the environment. So in those two sentences, I imagine tell you what our product is, what category it's in, who's going to buy it, where they're going to buy it, how we'll beat the competition. Uh, so that's a, a place to start. And that's so there's an actual formula that people can just follow to really get their elevator pitch succinct like that. The basics, right? Now, if you just say that, it sounds pretty boring. So you'll come up with all sorts of other stuff. You'll come up with a cool hook, right? Like, did you right. know, you know, I could, I could have, if I was Musk, I could have said like, hey, did you know that the, um, that the $8 billion a year supercar market has no equivalent to the Prius? Now, that's a really good hook because you probably didn't know it was an $8 billion a year market. So now you go from like, how many supercars are out there to, oh, that's actually a big market. And you start to think, wait, why isn't there equivalent of a Prius in this high-end market? So that's a hook. It gets you in and interested. I can talk about right. the team, right? I've got like, I'm a successful founder myself, right? I can talk about, I could ask you for something. So there's variations, but that's a good place to start. And then how about a, how about another, uh, a, like an actual pitch when you are sitting in front of uh, investors, how do you create a, a really solid pitch in all the data that you've yeah. So there's a formula again. Um, and I've got a YouTube video that goes through it. If you want to do that, the book goes through it. So there's right now, yeah. as of today, there's 10 slides, 10 to 12 slides. And you do those 10 to 12 slides in a very precise way. And um, when I launched my startup company in the late 90s, or early 2000s, instead, you sent people a 200 page business plan. That was your starting yeah. pitch. Now you don't do that. Now you send people a 10 slide deck, 
10 years in the future, it might be a virtual reality experience or singing telegram. I have no idea. But right now, it's a slide deck. Um, and there's a really good, there's a clear formula in that also. Um, now, the sk- step we're skipping is actually getting access to these investors is not easy. You actually need what's called a warm introduction. So you need someone who the investor trusts to make an introduction. Your chance of success is 13 times greater if you have a warm introduction than a cold one. So your first quest is yeah. actually to meet a to meet these venture capitalists. And one of the things I outline in the book, um, and I'm happy to talk about, is some of the research on how you meet venture capitalists if you don't already know who they are. Yeah, let's talk about it. I think that's a really good thing to talk about. Sure. And I'm sorry for all the data dumps, by the way. So happy to talk about anything else here. No, I really, I, I actually enjoy the data dumps because you can learn a lot from this stuff because this is what you do, right? You like, you research and you see so much data and you're, what, what, why I wanted to have you on is that we can glean a lot of information from this data that most, you know, layman people don't know, right? So we're going off these, you know, generalities that we see around, but like you said, like, I didn't know until you were on here that uh, the average, uh, the actual average age of an uh, entrepreneur was 42. I really did think it was someone who were in their late twenties, for example. Right. So you get, you learn a lot from this stuff. And and by the way, it doesn't, you know, you have lots of really impressive people on this podcast. I think I always have a balancing knowledge and wisdom, right? So like the wisdom they have is valuable, right? But it may or may not apply to you. So it's worth knowing the cold, hard facts. A hundred, I could not agree. A hundred percent. Like that's exactly it. Like it's one thing to hear from someone who's sold their company for a billion dollars, but it's another thing to really know the, the real, the real meat on the bone of how it's actually done. So, so let me tell you the secret to, okay. So there's actually the best way to raise venture capital. All right. This is going to shock you is to have already raised venture capital. So if you've already been successful, people <laughs> will keep throwing money at you. I know this is a shocker. Yeah. But so is, true, though. Yeah, and it actually is. It turns out, actually, we've, there's a lot of research trying to figure out what the value of being a serial entrepreneur is, right? So starting companies multiple times. And the latest data we have is kind of suspicious because it seems to show that almost all the value of being a serial entrepreneur comes from knowing venture capitalists and that they'll fund you. And if you take away that element, they're not that much better than first-time founders. Um, so, wow. So the only the the, the only real uh, benefit is it that they actually know a person that can actually give you the money, a venture cap, a VC person. So that's some of the data suggesting that. So I don't say there's nothing, but it's less strong. Like you think it's it's, it's, so it's wise less strong. Great. Yeah, it's, it's not as strong as you, it's not as strong as you would think, right? Because right. a lot of times, if how about if you're a serial entrepreneur that actually hasn't had that much success? I mean, they've had like moderate success, but not anything that I mean. Is there anything to that? They'll, they'll keep on getting money also just because they, they've done it so many times. They know the right people. Before, right. If they've heard cash before and they tell a good story. In fact, one of the reasons why it's really hard to learn from other people's failures in entrepreneurship is that we actually have really good uh, ethnographic studies that show that the stories people tell about why they failed have nothing to do with why they actually failed. Right. It's all about telling the story that you're still the hero. Was it your fault? No, what, you know, so you always hear like, oh, we just typed the market wrong. They'll never be like, I yelled at everyone in the office and everyone hated me. And then I blew all the money on a bad decision. More from our guests, but first a few words from our sponsor. Indeed knows it's a cautious time for businesses across America. Uncertainty flavors every decision. Every financial commitment is vetted. And now your next important hire is more crucial than ever. And Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. And you only pay for what you need. 
and you can pause your account at any time. And there are no long-term contracts. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash hustle. This is their best offer available anywhere. So go right now to Indeed.com slash hustle. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. But, but let's return to the, the, the steps to getting entrepreneurship, okay? Uh, getting venture okay. capital money. So there's, this is a paper by, um, by Kathy Eisenhart, and I'm trying to remember who the second person is in the book. I, I apologize if, if my colleagues are listening. I'm not trying to not credit you. Um, but they found, yeah, it's in the book. Look for the look, 150 footnotes, 80 pages, uh, but still. Which I, I love that it's also so little. Like you can get through this. It's a handbook. Yeah, it's right. It's, it's tiny, right? Tiny, short. Yeah. There's a couple jokes. Not too bad. Mostly dad jokes. I apologize in advance. <laughs> um, but um, so, okay. So it's a four-step process, all right? So step one is called casual dating. And this is actually what's called in the, in the method. So in casual dating, your goal is to create connections with venture capitalists before you need their money, right? You need those warm introductions. Once you start asking for money, it's a trouble. So you need to build out your network first. So how do you build out your network? Venture capitalists spend a huge amount of their time meeting people. So if you can get into that network and get introductions and meet people, people are happy to meet you for 20 minutes for lunch or breakfast, it's usually breakfast meetings mm -hmm. in, in venture capital. And you wanna meet as many of them as possible. And you wanna have conversations that are neither about asking for money, nor are they entirely like, how's your kids, how's life, right? They need to be focused, but not entirely, but not entirely um, about business. So the thing you usually want to do is ask for advice. They love giving advice. So, and you want to ask for advice though about things that are actually super, like that are that make you look good, right? So you mm -hmm. want advice like, you know, how do I apply for a patent? They're like that person's incompetent. Instead, you want to say like, I have these two amazing customers. Which one should I go for? Right? Like you want to give that kind of advice. So. You're gonna have a lot of casual to elevate you to make yeah. you look like you're like you're like sought after, but not exactly. like that you're a moron that you don't know how to figure you know fill out some kind of uh, application of some kind. Right, and you're giving them stakes in your decisions, right? Uh, yeah. So so casual There's a dating, fine line. Yeah, exactly. So like you have to kind advance. of do this in advance, right? And you need this well in advance of raising money. By the way, it's 83 days on average between contacting a VC and raising money if you do. So it's not a long, it's a long process already. You need to start this months in advance of that. Wow. Um, 83 days yes. between meeting the VC and then actually being able to ask them for money. And closing the deal. So and closing then, the deal. And that's, and that's assuming they have the first, that means you're starting the process. So you need to start this even more in advance. I've been mean, thinking about six months or so before you want to raise cash, you're doing casual okay. dating. Okay. okay. Second yeah. thing you need to do. Um, there, uh, here's a big secret of venture capital is like nobody knows who's going to win in the early stages of companies. We can't actually predict who's going to win very well. Once you pass the quality threshold, right? So we can rule out like bad players pretty easily, but once it's like, right. oh, that's a good idea and you seem qualified, it's hard to know who's going to win, right? So you need to show signals to the venture capitalists that you're going to be one of the winners. And how you do that is by what's called proof point timing. You want to show a lot of evidence you're going to win all right before you need the money. 
So that means that you're trying to get like a flow of good news that you can tell your casual dates about. You're just basically humble bragging to them, right? Like, yeah. so what you want to do is like, hey, you want to email a customer just agreed to buy our product. Oh, we won this, gra- this grant. Oh, we just went to start a pitch contest and won. Oh, we just hired this famous person. All the good news has to happen like a drumbeat, one after another, right before you raise money. So when the venture capitalists get emails about this because you now can contact them because they're casual dates, they're like, wow, this, this company's hot. Right, so you want to give the appearance of hotness, and that usually means yeah. speed up good news, but it could also be slowing down news that might hit at the wrong time, so it all hits at the right moment. Oh my gosh, it, it's very methodical, actually. You know, you have to be methodical about this process. Well, and that's I think the big failure people make with startups. Startups need to be biased towards action; they need to be doing stuff, but they should be doing random stuff. They need to be doing the right things at the right times. Right, right. It's not just right. like I'm going to go to make things happen. You might succeed, you might not. And of course, the model people follow with things like Facebook, right? Where it's like, oh, they just did stuff and stuff happened. If you're lucky enough to be at the right time at the right place, it, Mark Zuckerberg did not invent social networks, right? The one right. really super clever idea he had was launching at colleges first, but it wasn't even clear it was clever as much as luck. They lucked into that because he was at college. But like once Facebook was on the exponential curve, you couldn't stop it. It wasn't like it was brilliant leadership and marketing. It was, wow, this is the thing everybody wants. So Is it more momentum? Yeah, exactly. Momentum. Right? Momentum and good, good timing at the right time. It's not like it's not smart, right? Right. And, you know, we argue about whether Zuckerberg's grown into an amazing CEO or not, right? Um, and there's, you know, arguments both ways. But he certainly wasn't an amazing CEO as an 18-year-old, right? Or 20-year-old or whatever. He was running a hot company. And it, right. it would be hard right. to derail that. So that's not the model you want to follow. That's not the unicorn model. You want to follow a methodical model to become a unicorn, not right. follow their model. So, all right. So that was step two. Let me give you the last couple of steps real quickly. The third step is you actually need to know why your funders want to invest in you. So they want something too, right? Are they what do they want to invest in you because they they they've had a lot of big hits and they think you're the next one? Do they want to invest in you because their investment fund is winding up and they need a big hit and they missed one? Do they want to invest in you because they're interested in the in the space? But you, you have to understand that. And then finally, you're going to structure competition so that there's lots of options and so people are bidding for you. Uh, in a useful way. I talk about that more in the book. So if you do those four steps, you can get a similar outcome to knowing VCs, but it takes a lot more work. T- talk about the last one about a lot more options and they're, and that they're bidding for you. How do you, how do you expand on that? Okay. So you need to figure out a way so that you have alternate paths to getting resources if you can't get VC. So maybe you're going to run a crowdfunding campaign. Maybe you have a way of keeping growing with your current revenue, even though it won't be as fast. So that way, if the VC doesn't, you don't have to be begging for them. You don't have to put, like, you can sort of back off if it's not going well without burning right. all your contacts. Second right. thing you want to do is structure competition. So you want to start with your least desirable partners. As soon as somebody says yes, then everybody jumps in and says yes. So you need to start with the person who wants you. You've already scrutinized their interest. You want to start with the person who needs you most, even if you don't like them, because yeah, yeah. that can start the ball rolling and start the process. How much, okay, so we just, I just asked you a little bit about this, but how much of this in your data is about momentum and luck? What's the, like, how much of it is all these strategies and methodologies and how much is it just simple luck and momentum? So momentum comes from strategies and luck. So momentum is what happens afterwards. Um, Luck is huge, right? But skill is also big. So if, whether I told you it's 30% luck or 70% luck, it's still going to be either, you know, 70% skill or 30% skill. Skill still matters, right? Obviously, skill does matters. matter. Timing matters. 
Um, it's so complicated. The reason we can't predict success, even knowing all of this stuff, is it's complicated, right? It's a big mess. Like, there's so much stuff that has to go right, and you have to have lucky breaks, and, but you have to also take advantage of lucky breaks. You have to make your own luck. Resilient entrepreneurs who bounce back from failure do better. Entre almost all entrepreneurs who are successful do some pivoting or changing of direction as they go. So you're almost certainly going to fail a bit. So right. taking that failure, turning into success by pivoting, all of that has to come into play. How much is branding and just marketing, just being smart and how you're branding yourself? So I think you need to know your talent, right? If you are really good at branding, if you're, if you, you know, and I like, I've got, uh, you've, uh, you know, I, I've looked a little bit into some of your work too. Like this is something you're obviously very good at doing. Then your special skill or talent going all the way back to that effectuation idea really matters. What are you good at that no one else in the world is good at? But if you're not good at branding, if you're not good at marketing, then marketing often comes later for startup companies. You usually only want to market as a startup company once you have what we call product market fit. Once you know why people are buying your product, because then you market to why they're buying rather than based on guesses about why they buy. Now, there are magical marketers out there who could start with like a brand and then build things around it. But often, even the magical brands start with the idea of like, what's the need? How do I know the need is there? And then how do I build from that? And then, okay, so let's get back with the investing, right? So how do we actually get um, the investor to give us the money? Like you talked a little bit about in, in the book, something called symbol of success. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so it's one of these things that sounds like it's like fictional, right? It sounds like it's like a visualization technique, but it's not. Um, and I'll explain why. So it's called symbolic action. Entrepreneurs who look oh, symbol, like, okay, this is yeah. Right, yeah. Symbols of success, same thing, right? The, the yeah. entrepreneurs who look like they're going to succeed um, are more successful. And the reason goes back to what I was telling you before, right? We don't know who's going to succeed. So we're looking for signals, right? We're looking for, uh, for things that might indicate success. We're looking for patterns that match other founders. So if you look like you're going to be successful, right, um, which can mean many things, we'll talk about that, you're more, then investors and stuff will say, yeah, that person seems like they know what they're doing, right? And by the way, you are kind of showing you know what you're doing because you're doing enough to kind of put together the story of a founder. Right. So there's a right. bunch of categories here. And I often like to use the example I think I do in the book at some point of Theranos. So did, have you, did you ever watch like Bad Blood or read Bad Blood or watch either the Theranos documentaries um, no, about but, Elizabeth Holmes? No, but tell me. I know, but I, I, I never read that. But tell us anyway. I'm sure, so I'm have, sure lots of other like, people have. It was like a Netflix documentary and an HBO documentary. Um, and it's about this amazing con woman, Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, with who wears like a black turtleneck and speaks with a gravelly voice, and um, I should go and, watch it. I'm going to start watching it. Yeah, she, it's a fun. It's really amazing, right? She raised like a billion dollars of venture capital, and the product never. It was a blood test. Oh my gosh! Right, yeah, of course. I right. this was a while ago. This was yeah. a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, the documentary just came out like this spring or this fall or something like that. But yeah, it was. A, it this story a happened a few yeah, years ago. Exactly. I do remember this actually. Yes, yes, it's yes. Especially like how this woman raised a billion dollars with a non-working product and have hundreds of employees and had this not happen, right? And part of how she did is she did this symbolic manipulation stuff, right? It starts with personal. So Stanford dropout, right? Must be good at what they're doing, right? Wears a black turtleneck like Steve Jobs. In fact, all the articles referred to as like modeled after Steve Jobs. Well, like, what does that have to do at all with success? Like, but that's fine, right? And would wear a lab coat over that, even though she didn't, you know, compelling personal story that was somewhat fictionalized about her uncle with cancer. All, you know, all of that showed I'm the person who's like, I look like a founder who's going to be successful. Right. And then Why? there's like, oh, wow. 
you know, winning awards, showing prototypes. That was important. Having a important board of directors. She had this amazing board of directors, including people like uh, Jim Mattis, who was the uh, Secretary of Defense. Yeah. Right? Um, Henry Kissinger was on her board of directors. Like, notice all of those people, though, very important people. Not a single one of them knew anything about biotech, right? Not one. A fancy name list. And if you could have fancy names, you must be successful. Uh, she had like a fancy office, right? With like all these equipment that look like the kind of things that you're, you know, all of this stuff was symbols of success and it becomes self-fulfilling, right? Because you're like, well, these people thought she was good and she's dressed like this and she acts like this. That might be successful. It's true. You know what? I mean, just uh, on that same vein, you know, people I look at a lot, I, I, I see all, 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 like, all the time, actually, who I feel like, what did they ever do? But they come from the right pedigree, right? They know a lot of very, very wealthy people who are very successful. So through just association, people would assume that they are, and they're able to do all sorts of things that other people are not, not because they are extraordinarily talented or skilled or smarter. It's just because of their, um, their ability to kind of, uh, either the social circle Mm-hmm. or their ability to kind of con somebody to believe that they are by just perception, like yeah. by their visual, by their, I, I find that to be so interesting because it's a psychological thing. You think people would kind of like, kind of know better by now, but it doesn't seem to, no, it seems I mean, to work all the time. Right. I mean, it, work, and it works positively and negatively, right? Like, um, so, it, you know, it's really, there's some interesting sets of trade-offs that kind of happen depending on how you present yourself, right? It's not always presenting yourself as super slick. It could be that, you know, you, like being the Absolutely. science nerd is also could be helpful, right? It's about showing people what they want to see, what they expect to see, because they don't have other evidence, right? What we're looking for is symbols that you know what you're doing, not because it's like, you know, we're programming you with those symbols or it's like, mm-hmm. but it's, I don't know if you're going to succeed or not. How do I know, you know, like before, you know, before I listen to your podcast, how do I know it's going to be good, right? So I look at there's a number of stars. I look at the pic, I go to the website. You've got a very nice professional website that makes it look like you know what you're doing on this. And there's a great quote. Was I tricked you. I, and it's great. <laughs> I'm really happy to be on it. But, but it, it is about like first impressions and second impressions matter. And good founders take advantage of those. It doesn't substitute for substance, by the way. Right. It's not the same thing. And as you get more, as the company moves on, you go from like all of this sort of soft stuff to like, show me how much revenue you have. Right. Like, Everything right. else we're saying is trumped by like, I'm making a lot of money, right? That will get you open a lot more doors than anything right. else. Right, right, right. right. But we're right. talking about that early stage when you're still trying to kind of get that sense, then the symbols matter more. What other, what, what other things are, are ways that, or are things that the investors look at to actually give, to pass over the money? What else? Um, so another thing is for, there's a difference between professional and amateur investors, venture capitalists and frequent mm-hmm. angel investors, Shark Tank being um, prof- being professionals, right? And most other angel investors might be amateurs. Professional investors, interestingly, are not swayed at all by the passion of your pitch, right? Like you can be really good at pitching and use all kinds of, like be really charismatic, does not move the needle. They're looking at the data. They only care about how prepared the pitch is, how well the pieces fit together, how logical it is, because they've seen a thousand of these, right? So like you, right. it, like like it, you could be really passionate and really like convincing, and they're they'll see through the symbols better. While an amateur investor is much more swayed by passion. Like is that like a, so? Let so that would be more like a Shark Tank, right? Like what would make a Shark Tank pitch really hit that gets all four 
sharks to invest? What, what, like, what would be the thing? Symbol so, so of success? Yeah. So it's interesting. We actually have Shark Tank data that actually shows really good, really good demos is what makes Shark Tank succeed. Um, really? Because the demo shows it does all the symbol stuff. It shows that the product actually works, right? Uh-huh. It shows you know how to sell it. And, mm-hmm. it, and it lets people visualize what the future looks like with your product in it. Right, um, right, right, right. Right. So that stuff all seems to play a role. I mean, now I will be clear, like one of the negative things is like there's downsides of this too, right? So like female entrepreneurs make up 38% of all businesses in the U.S. are started by women. But do you know what, uh, I maybe remember the book, but what percentage of VC-backed companies have female co-founders? Female founders? Isn't it a very, it's a low number, isn't it? Five to eight percent. Yeah, I, right. I was going to say, it must be, I was like lower than like 5%. Yeah, it's, it's insane, right? Especially because we actually have really strong evidence that women are at least as good at running companies as men, right? The data is scattered between no yeah. difference and a positive difference at this point. Um, what's a condition on getting funding, right? And not only that, women find areas of, of businesses and other minor, other underrepresented groups do as well that um, that wouldn't be available to, you know, to like a white male starting a company, right? Because you, again, you start with your own interest and background. When women, for example, female um, inventors tend to create patents in areas that are less clear, that there are less patents in, and they tend to be more focused on problems that women have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those are under, so, so there's a lot of reason why a man, why men should invest in women, right? Female-led startups. Right. Part of the reason they don't is because of some of these biases and perception. Um, so there's a really cool study um, by uh, uh, Dana Cairns and uh, Laura Huang and others that um, shows that um, female in, um, investors get asked different questions. The female entrepreneurs get asked different questions than men. So women get asked about how they're going to avoid losing and men get asked how they're going to win. And women get more penalized for using risk language. They're talking about how they're going to take a risk. So the stereotypes really? run ways in these cases. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I have a, I have one that I, I want to know if it's a myth or not. That people tend to want to do business also with people that they feel that they are they are similar to, that look like them, that they feel that there's like a similarity between them. Is that true or false? Hundred percent true. We call that principle homophily. It, it, it basically, we like people like us. It's actually like Aristotle came up with the original, like mm-hmm. birds of the feather flock together. Basic right. human principle. We like people like ourselves. Right. This leads to all kinds of trouble if you're trying to be innovative because diversity brings innovation. But we end up want to be comfortable with people like us. Now, there are some advantages. Right. We know like South Asian uh, American, like Indian American entrepreneurs invest in more Indian American companies. Chinese American entrepreneurs invest in more Chinese American run companies. Part of that's homophily. We like people like us. But part of it's also networks. Right. If I'm checking up on you and want to make sure you're actually good and we're from the same community, I could check into that. So it becomes reinforcing a lot of ways. But right. this becomes a problem in receiving in, in venture capitalists, right? Because VCs tend to be mostly vast majority of white males, often from like five schools, right? So it's like Stanford, Harvard, Penn, a couple other places. And their networks consist of people like them. So when I talk to um, even very enlightened um, male VCs and they're like, why are you not investing more female companies? They'll often say, I don't see any female entrepreneurs. They're just not coming to me. And that's because their network is also all of men. And they're all men, yeah. Men. And so it's really hard for women to even break into this network in a warm introduction way. Not because this person is personally biased, but because their network is biased. Right, so, right. So really good founders or really good investors are realizing, like, I need to invest in more black founders. I need to invest in more female founders because that's how I'm going to grow my portfolio. 
but right. I can't use the same tools of assessing, do I like this person? It's, it's just a terrible principle in general. It's, it's bad for hiring. Uh, it's bad for innovation. Uh, and it's bad for investing. So I, and you just said something that's interesting. You're like, you keep, you keep on naming schools. Like you said, you keep on saying Stanford, Harvard. I don't think I've heard you say Wharton yet. Penn, Penn. Wharton's the business school of Penn. Okay, but so, still, okay, fine. But still, like, aren't you specifically doing a, aren't you a professor in the Wharton, in the business school of Wharton or no? Yeah, but I want to brag too much. I mean, we'll, we're happy to do it. But yeah, so, okay, here's you my should, brag You bit. should brag. Okay, here's, here's the brag bit combined with a problem, okay? So I'm going to give you both okay. things so I don't feel too bad about bragging. All right. Okay. So just to show you how uneven the venture capital game is, last year, everybody in the nations of France and Germany put together raised mm -hmm. $5.8 billion of venture capital. Penn grads, Wharton grads, raised $8.7 billion of venture capital. So more than everybody in the two, most, two of the three most advanced economies in Europe put together. Now, I'd like to say that's all because of my wow. teaching, because I teach them, and it's great. I've been, like People have raised like a billion dollars of VC in my class. It's wonderful. But I, it's not that, right? It's about these networks and these connections help, do help in these cases. Absolutely. But I actually have here written down to even ask you about that, because... What I find very interesting is that I was going to say to you, it's right here. It says, why, I was going to say, why do you think that there are so many Wharton Penn, I put Wharton slash Penn students that when they leave, they do so well in the real world. Like that, I think it's an exponentially better than other places, even other business schools. There is like, I, I, even I saw that data. Yeah. And yeah. I know for myself, my, my first cousin went there. And he's extraordinarily successful, and every one of his friends are extraordinarily successful in lots of uh, in lots of areas, yeah. right? What what is the reason for, besides you, of course, being their professor? Yeah. Besides that, that's obvious. Okay, don't right. let, let's not state the obvious. So, what are the so, other reasons? All right. So reason one is we get to pick the best people in the world, right? So everybody applies, we get you know whatever it is, ten percent, fifteen percent acceptance rate. We get to cherry pick, right? Second, doesn't Harvard also and Princeton and yeah. Yale and so so that that's very true, right? So other places do, and I we're neck and neck with these people, right? It's you know it's it varies one way or another, right? I also think that we do like I think that we do a good job of evidence based teaching. I think our teaching is really good, and then we've got great networks. We're a we're a bigger business school than some, um, so right. the, the top business schools were one of the larger ones, and so we have a pretty big connection network. More CEOs. It becomes self-fulfilling. More so, the highest percentage of CEOs of tech companies come from Penn. Like, so the CEO of Google is a Wharton grad, right? Right. Um, and so we have a lot. You know, Elon Musk is is from Penn, went to Penn. So we have a lot of like top people. But that there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You get the network connections. We get people hired from there, so you get a good first job. I did some research on looking at people who went to high prestige companies um, instead of lower prestige companies that paid more. And they, they get less pay early on, but they make a lot more money later on in life um, because oh. they have high prestige. So you're kind of paying for the prestige early on. So, I mean, there there is a bit of talent, there's a bit of luck, and there's a bit of prestige that gets transferred to you from being at a top school. Now, for you guys to take, for, for Wharton to take students, uh, this is like a, this is a, a, a discussion I have with people, my friends a lot. Um, does it matter what high school that the kids go to as a feeder school to get into Wharton or... Is it easier to get into Wharton if you're at a public school where you can be a superstar, right? Getting like A plus plus plus, or going to a private high school where it's super competitive amongst the children, and they grade where um, it's harder to get like an A plus, let's say, than it would be 
at a yeah. public school. So I, I'm not on the admissions committee and I'm not even allowed to talk to them under, you know, under most circumstances. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know why, but so I think, I mean, and you know, I, I only get to be so much, I grew up in Wisconsin, right? And like, I'd never even been like the day East Coast schools till I went to college. So like, I totally, you know, get that. I think that when I hire RAs, right? Like, so when I get to see the resumes of my undergrad mm -hmm. students, I would just say they're all extremely talented, right? And I think that one of the things to think about is the school's taking advantage, your background, the adversity that you faced, but being entrepreneurial about not just making money, but being entrepreneurial about finding opportunities to show off how great you are, how you can make a difference, how you create new things, um, or make a really big difference in this. So I think it's really thinking about that. And I, I'd encourage people to do, you know, to find, to show they're clearly passionate in something and actually be passionate in something rather than just trying to check every box. Right. No. So are you saying then um, that I understand to so having extracurricular things that show that you are, um, well, you know, you, you have, you have um, other hobbies and you're good at other things. I understand that. Now, just on that one question about private school versus public school, just from your, from what you've seen, does it make a difference? What, what your feeder is? If it's a, do you see more people, getting in that were from private schools that were like a feeder or can, is it just the same equal value going to a public school? So I could tell you, I went to public school and I'm sending my kids to public school. So I, I, I can't give you an exact estimate. You are that, sending, but, so you are um, sending your kids to, yes, public I my kids to public school. So, um, you know, so I, I, it's, it's hard to know, right? Like it's definitely the case that like, I, you know, I, when I was an undergrad at Harvard, you know, whatever, 20 years ago or whatever. Um, and there were less people from uh, Wisconsin, where I grew up for all, all four years at Harvard, than, um, than there were one year from Phillips Exeter Academy, which is like a fancy private school. Yeah. So fancy they also seem to do okay. So it's hard for me to know as somebody who like has been away from the admissions process and didn't come in through that elite world. Uh, right. I can't tell you, you know, unfortunately I can't give you the hints on this. I, I, I'd like to know the secrets myself, actually, for my own kids about how to break into these schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I'm telling I, you, that's I, I, look, I look at the students who are like my kids, the kids I'm teaching now, and I'm like, oh my God, they're so qualified. I would never get to college today. So <laughs> that was my next question. The people that you're teaching alone, are they mostly from, uh, are they mostly kids who went to a private school or people who went it's to a, a public school? About, about a quarter international or 20% are international. Um, you know, from all over the world, um, you know, and then the others, it's really a mix. I mean, I see a, a lot of public schools, a lot of private schools. I don't know what the ratio is. Sorry. I, you know, if you're I, a data if I had, person. Yeah. Well, yeah, except I don't have, I don't have the admissions data, right? That, uh, the one thing they won't I know. So can I, you, I can you, can you, can you, can you steal it from them and kind of get back to me on the, uh, on like the, I, on the DL I, I can, later I on? The DL. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's fine. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. Another question I wanted to ask you is what's the most surprising thing you have found in your research that really shocked you? What are a couple of things that you were like, wow, I would never have thought this to be the case? Um, so a few things that I think are important. One of the things that I found that was really surprising is, okay, so I told you how women are disadvantaged in a lot of cases in raising money. The one yep. place that women outperform men is in crowdfunding. So a female run project compared to a male run project is 13% more likely to succeed. Right. And why is that the case? I delved into this problem with Jason Greenberg. We found the answer was actually women were outperforming men. Not, we thought it might be because there's like more women in crowdfunding, right? So there's like fashion crowdfunding. We thought maybe you were getting more money because there were more women creating companies and more women backing companies. Maybe that's what's the reason. 
Turns out women were outperforming men where they were the least women. In things like video games and technology products, women were doing the best. And we found that the reason why was that there's a small percentage of women, about a third of women, who actively try and support other women when they see them being disadvantaged. And that was the reason why women were so successful. So it turns out that women helping each other, and two-thirds of women, by the way, wouldn't help other women. They actually were negative towards other women. Uh, I was going to ask you that next. uh, The one-third of women that helped each other out was the reason why women were succeeding. So there's something about actively supporting each other that seems to be really important. It was a surprise finding, I think, from some of the work that we're doing. What's the, that is that is very interesting to me. So you did find though, because that was literally my 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 next question about women, was you're saying that in your data the majority of women actually do they they actually not only do they not help other women they probably do the opposite they probably derail them in some way, but the ones who actually do help those are the ones who become ex- exponentially more successful when they actually do help each other. That's the way this the community advances. So, so what we did as a side experiment was we took the exact same fake Kickstarter project, right? Mm-hmm. And we showed two versions of it. Like, so we did surveys of hundreds of people, um, you know, experiments of hundreds of people, and they saw one of two versions of the product. They either saw a version created by a man or a woman. All we changed was the picture. And by the way, we actually used the a lab at Princeton to confirm that the pictures were exactly equally attractive. So an equally attractive man and woman. Uh, and <laughs> that all we did was change their name from Jessica Smith to Michael Smith. Right. So it was one was Jessica Smith, one was Michael Smith. The most common name for millennials, by the way, in the U.S. is Jessica Smith and Michael Smith. Um, really? So we tried to keep everything the same. Otherwise, nothing changed. So okay. men didn't show bias either way. They didn't see like whether they put about the same amount of money and whether it's a male or female run project. Two thirds of women said the project created by the woman was by the man was better. Those people also were people tended to answer questions that it wasn't important to help out other women, that they didn't see women at a disadvantage. They thought the project, if it was, if they saw the male created version of the project, they thought it was better, a higher quality, more likely to succeed. One third of women, the ones who tended to also answer questions that it's important to help other women succeed, women, you know, we have to help each other overcome disadvantage. Those thought the projects created by women were better, and they were more likely to give money than any other group to the women. So it was that small, and we find the same effect, by the way, of venture capital. On average, female venture capital partners invest less money in women-owned ventures than male venture capital partners. Wow. So you ha- it's about not just being, representing your group, but also thinking about how you help each other out. No, I, I, I tend to, I, I feel that anyway. Like, I, I feel it's very true. I've experienced that, right? I think that there's there, there's been um, now more efforts to make a shift, but... I don't know how uh, genuine it is, right? Because that's I've noticed that too. You know, I feel that women tend to, even though it may not be PC to say it, I feel that a lot of women are feel very competitive with other women, and therefore would not do would not be a support system. Yeah. The, the sociology actually backs you up on this. So, for most people, there is what's for if you're no matter what your minority status is, right? It could be right. gender, it could be race, or it could just be that you're from a different country and you know in another group. But there, you that if you're a minority group member, there's incentives for you to preserve your minority group member. So women help other, like for example, female bosses promote other women until the level below them is has a rep- representative number of women and then they stop doing it both because they see less disadvantage then but also because they don't necessarily want to threaten their own position so we call this right. a tokenism effect and it's a very real thing that you're talking about it's called what tokenism tokenism Being i love token. all these 
I love I, I love all these like terminologies. I mean, I'm trying to think of what else I wanted to ask. I've got so many different questions I want to ask you. Um, is there anything else that I've missed that you want to talk about that is is really important in you know talking about what really holds back startups, how to um, help help a startup? Is there anything that I'm missing? Uh, one last thing I wanted to say, which is um, that because we didn't talk about the later stage of a startup, and I think the number one answer is like, don't be a jerk. Right. I think people tend to view entrepreneurs because they're always shown as like jerks, right? Like entrepreneurs are always like Steve Jobs was a complete jerk a lot of the time, right? Mark Zuckerberg, right. like these are not people who are like, oh, I want to hang out with these people. And that becomes the impression that you need to be some sort of like, you know, um, jerk, uh, yeah, objectivist, you know, kind of caring about yourself kind of approach. And that just isn't true, right? It turns out that companies where like people are supportive and care about each other outperform companies where that doesn't happen. And companies can't have it all. So culture that is good and caring can also be good in innovation. It can also be good at execution. So this idea that like there's there's some sort of jerky center of capitalism is not actually supported by the evidence, right? Kindness matters. Kindness matters. You know, you just said it, corporate culture. I wanted to ask you about corporate culture um, because with corporate culture comes an employee uh, employee satisfaction, right? Which then helps you know employees a, a happier environment would create a happier product, blah, blah, blah. Um, is there any data that talks about the corporate, what about corporate culture? And let's talk about that. Yeah, there's pretty overwhelming work on corporate, on corporate culture. And as you'd expect, like corporate cultures that are pro-social where people help each other have all sorts of advantages. Places where people feel belonging have all sorts of advantages. And even very directly in startups, we know that organizations that are built around a sense of commitment to each other are more likely to IPO gain more money and are more likely to survive long, uh, you know, survive bad times than those that are built around just cash or work or greed. Right. What, what is exact, what's the exact course that you teach at Wharton, by the way? So I teach a few of them. Yeah. It's okay. an introduction to entrepreneurship. And then I have some very strange courses where I also, we haven't talked about this, but I'm also super into uh, using games for teaching. So um, it'll be available to the public in about six months, I think. But we actually have games that will teach people how to be an entrepreneur. Um, so I'm working on some of those things too, and I'll, I'll have to come games? back and talk more about those. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would love that. Well, yeah. I, well, the one, the, another question. Now I'm remembering a couple other questions that I had for you. One was, and then we could, we could definitely come back and talk about that. That would be very interesting. Um, is an entrepreneur like we were talking when we first started this podcast about personality traits that make people that you know, you were saying that there's no, there's actually, there's no real, the data shows that it's not actually clear what makes someone a good entrepreneur, but what character traits make them even try or attempt to, right. to be an entrepreneur. Um, but my question to you was, now I forgot what the question was. Oh yeah. How, is there ways that you can actually learn? I mean, people think you're either made that way, you're born that way or not. What are some things that do you teach people how to actually be a better entrepreneur, how to actually go into it and be a better entrepreneur? What do people do if they're not, they don't have the money to be at Warren or the grades? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, first of all, the book is a distillation of the course. So that's a place to start. Uh, uh, but, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're the person. See, I'm the academic. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Looks good when you do it. Uh, Thank so, you. So, um, so um, the... I would say that the, um, 
there's a couple areas we know. First of all, entrepreneurs are not born, right? I mean, again, attempts can be born, right? So we do know there's even some slight evidence that there might be a genetic component about risk-taking that people, makes people founders. You know, if your parents are founders, you're more like a tribe. It doesn't make you successful, right? Okay. So one of, the, one of the things that drives me craziest is this idea that entrepreneurship is, you know, are born, not made. Because it's bad in like three different ways, right? It's bad because it, it, it makes you think, I don't have to learn anything. I just do this. Like, this is a natural skill, like being, you know, and like... That's just insane. Like, even if you're naturally gifted at basketball, you're still going to practice if you want to be elite, right? Right. So it only says, I don't have to learn anything, right? You absolutely have to learn something, right? The second thing it, it, it does is say, like, if you don't feel like you're a founder, then, you know, maybe you shouldn't be one. And that's not true either. And the third thing is, then you look at the people who say, who feel like they're born founders, and they're often the ones who are free of doubt. And they're like, and that's not the model to follow. That doesn't, you don't have to be free of doubt to be a good founder, Right. Right. So I think it's a really terrible idea. And we already know, actually, there's really clear evidence that, it, that when you teach people to be a founder, better found, like entrepreneurship skills, they become better founders. So just two examples from recent research. If you teach people, and the book goes through this in more detail, how to run experiments, right? Entrepreneurship is an experiment. You're testing things out to see whether they work or not. If you do that in a disciplined manner, a nice study out of Italy just found that you're twice as likely, you generate twice as much revenue a year later, if your small business taught to do experiments versus taught other things not about experiments. We also know that you can be taught how to pitch better. So these things are learnable skills. I'm not saying you can learn everything, but you can learn enough stuff. And if you're going to spend your time doing this, you should learn. No, I think that's great. I think that this book really is extremely helpful for people who are, you know, interested or doing a startup or interested in starting a startup. Because like you said, you may, you may not, an entrepreneur may not be born, they could be made. And if you learn how to do a proper elevator pitch, learn how to do a, re a, a, a regular pitch, know how to, you know, what people are looking for, how to talk to VCs, um, also uh, where, when to go for an angel versus crowdfunding, whatever. These are very, very valuable tips in here and practical tips that people can utilize to be, have a, have a shot at being successful as a startup and as a founder. Yeah, that's, right? that's, that's the hope, right? And it, it's a small book, right? I'm not going to collect, like, there's better books, that, no. there are books that will walk you through every step of, you know, here's how you incorporate, that's not here, right? But this is our best evidence we have, it's what I teach in my classes, um, and it's, I think, things entrepreneurs should know. I also think that you're just, you're, you're, you're uh, underselling the fact that it's a small book. I think people appreciate the fact that it's a small book, because you're not, like, filling it with a lot of, like, nonsense and jargon that's not helpful. So yeah, I, I, you get you get the brass you get the meat and then all the other fluff is you can find it somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I was looking at creating a book, I was thinking about like okay, there's they usually have to, you have to repeat these concepts twenty times, and I need you need to tell a story for each one, and there's some stories in there, right? But like I didn't want to have like a twenty page like story where I talk about one founder. I did like there's lots of other good books that'll tell you that stuff, right? Oh so God, this is really true. just the narrow like I'm trying to get make each sentence hit, and that's the goal. No. I appreciate that, believe me, because I have to go through a lot of books in this podcast with guests. And how often do I tell you that I have to read a book that's very, very long, 500 pages, and most of it, 300 and like 485 pages of it is like nonsense. But you have to go through these stories and case studies and this and this and that and the other just to get to like one point, you know? And I, yeah. like I said, People don't want to do that. They want to get to the meat of the matter. And uh, you've done that really well, Easton. And so, Thank you for coming on the podcast. Tell people where they can get the book and where they can follow you or, or find out more of your findings and data. 
So the book is actually partially inspired by my own Twitter feed. So I tweet out tons of articles and random stuff. So you're welcome to follow me at, at emalik on Twitter. Um, and there's links to books on my Twitter profile. And then um, the unicorn-shadow.com. You can buy the book there, but it's also, I have tons of free resources. So like everything I collect that I give links to my students for classes, like, you know, videos and, and other information and web articles, you can go there and read all that stuff for free and then buy the book either like from whatever retailer. And if you buy it on Amazon, you like it, you could write a review. That would be bad. Um, and then, uh, yeah. So I, again, not marketing as well as you are, but I'm trying. Um, and, uh, but Good yeah, job. so appreciate try. it. Yeah. Thank you so much. For, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a, a, a total delight and a pleasure. I've learned a lot myself. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank and you. hopefully I can come back and we can do a treadmill thing at some future point. Oh my God. Absolutely. You got it. Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle from nothing into something. All out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast powered by Habit Nest. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.